Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, our head pastor, Dr. Rhett Payne, studies the book of Romans. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. Let's look at the book of Romans. We're in part 18. The comfort of God's faithfulness is the title of the message today. Romans chapter 8. Uh, many call this the greatest chapter in the New Testament. I have to agree, it's a tremendous chapter of encouragement. Romans chapter 8, we'll look at the last verses of that chapter, starting at verse 28. My sources include Derek Thomas's book, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home, a message by Tim Keller entitled The Christian's Happiness, a book by Stuart Aliop, The Gospel as It Really Is, a commentary on Romans, and then John R. W. Stott's commentary, The Message of Romans from the Bible Speaks Today series. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. This is Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. This is the word of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. As a follower of Christ, I need this word, and I know that many of your children here today need this word. So please give us the grace to hear this word. And Lord, for those that don't need this now, but will need it, would you help them to listen today and to trust you, the giver of all good things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. A lot of people like me were thinking of the late Daryl Stingley this past year as his grandson, Derek Stingley, became a star on the national champion LSU Tigers football team. Darrell spent 29 years of his life in a wheelchair, and his death in 2007 at the age of 55 
was related to an injury he suffered on August the 12th, 1978. Darrell was a top receiver for the New England Patriots. He was leaping for a pass that was thrown by quarterback Steve Grogan when Jack Tatum of the Oakland Raiders hit, laid a hit on him that broke his neck and left him a quadriplegic. It's the ugly part of football. When the press interviewed Stingley 10 years after his injury, he said this, I have relived that moment over and over again. I was 26 years old at the time. And I remember thinking, what's going to happen to me? If I live, what am I going to be like? And then he says, there were all those whys. Why? Why? He then said this, it was only after I stopped asking why that I was able to regroup and go on with my life. You know, a crucial part of moving on for Daryl Stingley was forgiving Jack Tatum, the Oakland Raider who had ended Stingley's career. Tatum was always a violent hitter. If you ever watched him play, you know this. And he played the way he played, has been debated, was debated in football circles for years. He even wrote a book, Jack Tatum did, entitled Final Confessions of an NFL Assassin. Though disturbed by reading it was Tatum's intent to hurt those on the opposing team, Daryl Stingley forgave the man who paralyzed him. Changed his life. He said this, For me to go on and adapt to a new way of life, I had to forgive him. I couldn't be productive if my mind was clouded by revenge or animosity. When Daryl learned that Jack Tatum had to have a part of his leg amputated because of diabetes, Daryl said he felt for him. When interviewed by the Boston Globe in 2003, Stingley said this, You can't, as a human being, feel happy about something like that happening to another human being. Maybe the natural reaction is to think that he got what was coming to him. But I don't accept human nature as our real nature. Human nature teaches us to hate. God teaches us to love. Darrell visited other people in the hospital who were paralyzed. He helped the inner city youth of Chicago and even wrote a book, Happy to Be Alive, about the trying nature of his experiences. The Reverend Edward C. Brown is Stingley's cousin, and he conducted the paralyzed player's funeral. He said this, Daryl was a good man. He didn't stop serving God just because he had a life of suffering and pain. He lived a life focused on the future and not on the past. Isn't that a great statement? Sometimes the worst that life has to offer us happens. And even though the Bible tells us that the rain falls on the just and on the unjust, we still struggle when pain and suffering comes our way. C.S. Lewis is a tremendous writer. We are blessed to have all of the writings of C.S. Lewis available to us. And he wrote so many encouraging things, uplifting things. But he also wrote a book called A Grief Observed about the pain of his Wife's battle and ultimate death to cancer. And here's what he wrote. Her absence is like the sky. Spread over everything. 
Where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. Some of you know exactly what he is talking about. Many people in this room do. I mean, why are suffering and loss a part of our lives? If you're following in the outline, the answer is because the world we live in is a fallen, imperfect world. It's an imperfect world. In this life, in this fallen, imperfect, and unfair world, you and I are going to experience all kinds of suffering. And like so many others, as we encounter suffering, we're going to ask God a lot of questions. One day, a question about suffering was put to Jesus. And so if you'll look with me in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. Luke 13, starting at verse 1. Luke writes, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, that Pilate had killed. Pilate being the governor, the governor who delivered Jesus to be crucified. Why why do we have Pilate in the Apostles' Creed? To remind us that this is an act of history. It's recorded history that Pilate was the governor who could have set Jesus free, but he did not. So don't ever feel sorry for Pilate. Don't ever think, oh, poor guy, he's in such a tough spot. Don't feel sorry for him. He was an evil man. And so Jesus is talking about these Galileans that Pilate had killed. And he answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he brings up another situation. Or or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You know, it's, it's human nature to think that if somebody suffers badly, this is also terrible theology, but human nature tends to make you think, well, maybe they did something wrong. Jesus eliminated that as an option in Luke 13. He eliminates that as an option. Remember the man that was born blind and, and the, the Pharisees were watching as Jesus healed this young man? And even the disciples were asking, what did, he, what did he do to deserve this? Or did his parents do something? And Jesus said, no. This is so that the glory of God might be seen. So those 18 people that were presumably walking down the street, minding their own business, they were just walking down the street and a tower fell on them and killed them. And so how did Jesus answer their question about what about those people? He didn't say, now, remember, it's just not an easy thing to watch over all the people of this world. I mean, your father in heaven can't be everywhere at once. He didn't say that, did he? Of all the things that Jesus could say, though, what he did say 
sounds pretty callous, pretty unfeeling. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. I mean, what an answer. What do you think Jesus meant when he said that? I think Jesus is saying that these people were asking the wrong question. He's saying the question they should have asked was not, why did God allow these innocent people to die by having a tower fall on their heads? Instead, the question they should have asked was, Jesus, why didn't that tower fall on me? So the wrong question is, why me? That's the wrong question. The right question is, why not me? So the real question is not, why do bad bad things happen to good people? But in fact, why do good things happen to any one of us? Seriously, from God's point of view, there are always plenty of good reasons why God should visit cities and states and nations with dire calamities. At any rate, I do know what you're saying when you ask, why do bad things happen to good people? It troubles me as well. So let me try to answer you the best way I know how. And In fact, this entire text has some unbelievably comforting news about the faithfulness of our God to us as followers of Christ. So this morning, in the time we have remaining, let's look at three lessons. And I hope you'll take some notes on this. Number one. Our bad things will turn out for good. Our bad things will turn out for good. Now, many have been told that if they become a Christian, all their troubles will disappear. When I became a Christian, I had a little bit of that going on in my head. I thought, well, you know, now that I'm following Christ, everything's going to go just great in my life. I was misled. It's categorically untrue. I mean, if that is true then the Apostle Paul was out of the will of God his entire life, his entire ministry. Christians are called upon to take up a cross and follow a crucified Savior. So, do bad things happen to Christians? Yes, they do. They do. Disease, bankruptcy, divorce, untimely death, and a thousand other evils occur in the lives of godly people. And I want you to look with me again in our text at verse 35. And it's a question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a good question. And then he says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I want you to think about that list. There's some terrible things in that list. Paul is saying all the same things that happen to everybody else will happen to believers even if you love God. It's a hard, hard passage to to really swallow, but this is what God's Word teaches us. And I'm going to pause in the hope that you will get that. That bad things will happen even if you love God. And probably half of your discouragement and despondency over the bad things that have happened in your life are your surprise at the bad things that have happened to you. It's our sense of entitlement that we deserve better and that the people we love deserve better. But what our text teaches us is that although bad things can and do happen, God 
is working them for our good. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians will have better circumstances. It doesn't say that bad things are actually good things. I mean, that's ludicrous. No, it says that these are bad things, but for the Christian, verse 28 is true. And so look again at verse 28 of the text. Romans 8, 28. This is a verse that a lot of people have memorized, and it would serve you well to memorize it as well. But memorize it appropriately, because there is a a wrong way to read this passage. Verse 28 says, and we know, in other words, we can bank on this truth, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, this incredible verse of scripture is an unbelievably comforting passage directed only to Christians, only to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, This verse is not for you. It's for those who are followers of Christ and love Jesus. Those who have been called according to his purpose. All things must include the sufferings that we talked about last week in verse 17. And the sufferings that's talked about, the groanings that's talked about in verse 23. I mean, while we live in this world, this fallen, imperfect world, there are going to be things that happen to us in which we... We groan over the pain and the suffering that we are experiencing or someone we love is experiencing. And Paul reminds us that nothing, nothing is beyond the overruling, overriding scope of God's providence. See, we believe in a sovereign God. A God who is sitting on the throne, who is in charge and does all things well. We also, because of that, believe in providence. Without a sovereign God, there is no providence. In fact, I really try not to use the word luck anymore. When people say good luck to me, I, I want to correct them, but, you know. And if you say good luck to people, maybe you ought to rethink that, because that just means there's a happenstance that could happen. We, as followers of Christ, believe in providence, which means there are good fortunes in the, the hands of God that he allows to come our way, blessings that he allows to come our way, and sometimes he allows not good things to come our way. And so Romans 8, 28 is, is a great comfort to me and a great encouragement to me because I know that just as we read in the beginning here is that not a hair on my head can fall without the Lord Jesus knowing about it. That the hairs on my head are numbered. He knows me that well. He even said in the book of Matthew that if a sparrow falls, he knows about it. And then Jesus said, remember... You're worth a lot more than many sparrows. John Piper talks about verse 28, and he describes verse 28 as a fortress. A fortress that once you're inside that fortress, it cannot be penetrated. So listen to what he says about Romans 8, 28. He says, once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8, 28, everything changes. There comes into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good, all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience, is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. So the most difficult thing for us in the face of God's providence is timing. Timing. We think, okay, this bad thing has happened But God is now going to come through for me. 
So we wait a week, we wait a month, we wait a year, and nothing has changed. So I would say to you this morning, don't wait. Don't wait a week, don't wait a month, don't wait a year. Don't wait a decade. Because you might be waiting a lot longer. The promise is that God will make sure that all the bad circumstances in your life will work together for good in your life in its totality. No time limit has been set by God, so don't expect a time limit, at least not one that you will ever know. Now, we sang Amazing Grace a week or so ago, and John Newton wrote that. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a vile and wicked man. And he said in the writing of that hymn, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We talked about that. Do you feel like you're a wretch? Well, he did. And everybody who knew him agreed he was a wretch. And Christ saved him. And here's what he said that is really a very insightful thing. John Newton says, everything is necessary that he God sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. In other words, the things that you think you need, they would only be good in the short run, while the things that really hurt, foolishness, pride, selfishness, hardness of heart, unbelief, these are the only things that can hurt you in the long run. So our good things, yeah, those are wonderful, but what about the bad things? So the first lesson is our bad things will turn out for good in the gracious and merciful hand of God in his time. And it could be in eternity, but you will know it one day, whether in time or in eternity. Second lesson, our good things can never be lost. Our good things can never be lost. I'll give you an example of a common misconception about Romans 8.28 that we've been talking about. It goes like this. Well, I didn't marry the girl, or I didn't marry the guy that I wanted to marry. So that means that there's a better one for me somewhere out there. Or I didn't get the job I wanted then, but that's because there's a better job for me somewhere out there. That's not the promise. That's not the promise. Tim Keller writes this in his sermon. He said this, How dare we interpret verse 28 as a joy that is dependent on those things. And so look with me again at Romans 8.28. And let's look also at the next verse that follows. Because that's the word we need to focus on in understanding what 28 is about. Verse 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Then keep going. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the word for in verse 29 actually ties these two verses together, 28 and 29. God doesn't promise you that if you love him, you will get better life circumstances. There's no promise there. We're talking about a joy that goes beyond your life circumstances. I asked you in the beginning at the confession of sin, you know, somebody says to you, how are you? Well, under the circumstances. So you think, well, you're not supposed to be under the circumstances. Are you supposed to be over the circumstances? 
I mean, that's the way a lot of people think Christians are supposed to be, is we live somehow above the circumstances. No, no, we don't. We don't live above the circumstances. We face the circumstances by the grace of God. I mean, you can't live above your circumstances. You can't live under them. You can, but you don't want to. You need to live facing those by the grace of God and knowing that the strength of Christ is available for you as you face those. So, but be sure you get this. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. A better life. Romans 8.29 points us in the direction of the goal toward which all of our circumstances are moving us. Verse 29 mentions a word that is oftentimes attributed to Presbyterians. And so don't get nervous when you see this word. It's all over the scriptures. Predestined. That's a word we're very famous for. I, I, I don't get it because every church should be famous for predestination. It's in there. And I don't plan to explain the doctrine of predestination this morning, but that is coming if you've ever read Romans 9 before. But when you hear the word predestined, it's a word that means what? It means fixed. Fixed. So what is it that God has predetermined or fixed? According to verse 29, that you and I would be conformed. Conformed. That's the Greek word morpha, from which we get the word metamorphosis. So it's, it's the word changed. We would be changed. God's goal for us through bad circumstances is to enable us to trust Him and to turn to Him and fall upon Him who is our rock. And we're not rocks. I mean, Peter said he was. Even his name indicated he was. And what happened to Peter? He fell right on his face. Because he needed the rock that will not crumble. And so turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. You know, this is talking a little bit about Moses. When Moses would go into the presence of God... He would have to wear a veil when he came out among the people. Remember that? Because his face was glowing. And it was really hard for people to, to be around Moses because he was so bright. And so basically, Paul is using the analogy of this to say, well, this, this veil, and you know, if a bride wears a veil, you worry about that bride because you wonder, can she see? Well, probably not much. It's, it's kind of hard to see through a veil. And that's what basically Paul is saying here is that there's this veil that has been covering the eyes of the Jewish people so that they can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And so, but then he says in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And then he says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, he says, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So that the good that God is moving you toward through everything that happens in your life, whether good or bad on the outside, is an inner transformation of you into the character of Jesus Christ. If you love God, the scriptures teach that everything that happens in your life will mold you, it will sculpt you, it will shape you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, do, do you see? You see what he's saying? Everything in your life, whether good or bad, God is working in to direct you toward that incredible goal of Christ likeness. So, for example, that husband or that wife that you struggle with, that, that job that drives you crazy, Paul says even that is a tool in the hand of God to shave off your rough edges, to develop your character so that you become more like Jesus Christ. So our text says it is predestined, it is guaranteed. So at this point, let's read not only 28 and 29, let's go on and read 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then he says this, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So, before we talk about this, how do you read verse 30? And understand verse 30. You read it in reverse. Reverse order. Who did he glorify? Those he justified. Who did he justify? Those he called. Who did he call? Those he predestined. That's how you understand that passage. So what was the last word in verse 30? Glorified. Glorified. Past tense. I mean, shouldn't he say, we'll glorify? Because when you die, you enter immediately into the presence of God. The Bible says that when you see him, you will be like him and then you will be glorified. Not until then, right? That's the first step in glorification. The final stage is when Jesus Christ returns at the great resurrection. And that's when your body and spirit are reunited. You see, you're not, you're not really yourself completely without your body. And so when a person dies, their spirit goes immediately into the presence of God. But they're missing their body. They will get their body back when the great resurrection occurs. And that's when there will be body and spirit one unit again. And so when that happens, you'll be just as beautiful as Jesus in his glorified body. So what is Paul saying? He's saying glorification for the believer is just as good as done. In the eyes of God, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, God already has this plan for you. And it's a beautiful plan, even though right now we look through a, a mirror, we look through a glass darkly. We can't fully comprehend it because we're finite human beings. God has a beautiful plan and he's calling us to trust him. So our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And the third and final lesson is the best things are yet to come. The best things are yet to come. So this means if you understand what is to come and you believe it, you can handle anything down here. To go with the affirmations that we've looked at in verses 29 and 30, Paul asks five unanswerable questions or basically five rhetorical questions to which there really is no need for an answer. And in the outline, I have those listed if you look at them with me now at this time. Verse 31, if... Basically, since God is for us, who can be against us? It's a wonderful question. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? I mean, that's a point to our future. 
God did not even spare his own son for us. He will give us all things. And then verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? What's the answer? No one. No one will condemn you because God is our judge. He's already justified us, which means he's already declared us not guilty because he put our guilt on his son. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? No one. I mean, all those who seek to condemn us, and there are people that will condemn you from time to time. I mean, even ourselves, we condemn ourselves. Ultimately, that's going to fail. Why? Because of Jesus Christ, who's declared you are not condemned through faith in in Christ. And in verse 35, the last one, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can pain, can misery, can loss separate us from Christ's love? Verse 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And how did Jesus demonstrate his love? By going to the cross. Since Christ proved his love for us by his sufferings, in the same way, our sufferings cannot possibly separate us from his love. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Romans 8. We're going to read this again. I don't want us to miss this. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Please read it with me together from your outline. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us a better life. A life that is not like this life on this earth. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as you are seated there, you are pleading on our behalf to the Father, praying for us. Because, Lord Jesus, you know we need your prayers. We need your strength. We need your encouragement. We need your hope. Lord God, as Christians, we trust this, your word. We bank on this as your word and are so thankful for verses like verse 28, where it says, and we know. So, Father, I pray today for the people in this place that need your grace so that they can know that in all things, Yes, even in the things that they are struggling with, you are at work. And Lord, just like C.S. Lewis heard only silence when he prayed to you. There are many in this place that have prayed and prayed and they're not hearing you. I pray that they will hear you today. That they will sense your presence through the Holy Spirit as you wrap your arms around these children of yours that you love. I pray this because you are a faithful God. And I pray this with thanksgiving through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.